Hello! Welcome to the Taylor Swift is a Volatile Asset edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I am coming to you from Oxfordshire, where I have flown for a conference and I'm joined by the amazing Janine Gibson. Hi, Janine. Hi. You are... You have some a grand job oh, at the I'm Financial a, Times. Oh, I'm assistant editor at the Financial Times. You just have a new boss. Congratulations. Yes. Oh, uh, the old one hasn't left yet, so I think he would be slightly offended. January is the handover. In January, <laughs> the FT2 will be taken over by a woman, just like yeah, all the institutions color. should be. Janine is the best person in the world. So you are going to be here to talk to us about Hong Kong and other things. But before we get there, we also need to mention, as ever, that we are joined by... Emily Peck of HuffPost in New York. Hello. And also Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hello. And what's on the menu for this week? I feel like we have to talk about Taylor Swift, obviously. And we also need to talk about TikTok because I have become addicted to TikTok and I need to understand what is going on with its Chinese ownership. But since we're thinking about China, I think we should start by talking about Hong Kong because that seems to be going from bad to worse. So I think that's the menu for today. It's going to be Hong Kong and Taylor Swift and Kylie Jenner, because obviously, and TikTok. And a Slate Plus segment all about hummus wars. You're going to want to listen to that one. All coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Anna. Yes. As the expert on all things international, Shay, Slate Money, what has happened in Hong Kong? Has it got even worse? It does appear to have gotten worse. So there have been pretty severe protests at the Polytechnic University. And the protests, which had been kind of concentrated in certain areas and at certain times, have really spread out and are kind of affecting the lives of now a lot of people in Hong Kong. And as as well, you're now actually seeing the U.S. government start to weigh in. What's the U.S. government doing? So the U.S. government has basically is saying that they are putting their support on the side of the protesters and they're saying that they want the special status of Hong Kong to potentially be looked at every single year to make sure that Hong Kong is actually separate from the mainland and thus receives certain special privileges related to trade and other things. 
this is not just Congress. This is the White House. This is the American executive is really coming out in favor of basically the the protesters' demands. Yeah, and, but you really, this is something that you are seeing as a bipartisan move on Congress, which is interesting because obviously there aren't many bipartisan issues on Congress right now, but the support for Hong Kong and this kind of anti-mainland China feeling is also clearly pretty popular on both sides of the aisle. It's actually remarkable in the House, it, this legislation passed by a vote of 417 to 1, and then unanimously... Who was the one? <laughs> I don't know right <laughs> off the top of my head. And then unanimously approved in the Senate Tuesday. So, I mean, this is this rare moment where we have this cross-party support for something. and um, But it's coming at a tricky time, I think, yeah. for the president, who's sort of trying to fix the mess he created with the China trade war. So I think this is going to make it a little more difficult to end that. Right? Exactly. Yeah, we just yeah. had a big move in the markets when the markets finally woke up and realized that they were not going to resolve the trade war anytime soon, right? right? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that this has been this ongoing kind of issue where it's like Donald Trump, you know, says something in front of an airplane or he tweets something and all of a sudden people are like, oh, there's going to be a phase one trade deal. And then Two days later, it's not. And then it's, it's kind of silly at this point. But to go back to Hong Kong, I mean, this is five months now of yes. disruption. The local economy is kind of in a shambles. They keep having to close schools. People aren't shopping. I mean, long term, what does this say about the city as um, a place where businesses, you know, like to do business? What What is it going to mean long term? What are people saying? Yeah, you're actually getting the economy in Hong Kong in recession. And you, you have this in kind of a micro and then a larger level, because if you're thinking about, you know, businesses, restaurants that potentially for a few months aren't having a lot of traffic, I mean, that's a huge deal. You know, and then when you start to expand and think outwards from that, you know, Hong Kong has been this hub of kind of the way that you get capital into kind of China, the way you get capital out of China. And it's it's served this purpose. You have a lot of businesses there. And there is a lot of discussion now about are people going to be looking at Hong Kong the same way moving forward? Janine, everyone has always thought of Hong Kong as being the foremost Asian financial center. Is that now over? Um, I, I was just listening to the conversation thinking every conversation I have with businesses in the UK about Hong Kong ends with someone saying, I mean, it's over. That, that obviously lots of business have a lot of uh, connections between uh, the UK and Hong Kong and somebody immediately wishes to what is your alternative Asian headquarters going to be there's a lot of talk about Tokyo there's a lot of talk about Singapore but people really feel that Hong Kong is is done but they say the same about London obviously because of Brexit so I don't, <laughs> I don't know that you should immediately make plans but but that is the sort of sentiment around it and do you think that is important like what uh, what are the bigger consequences beyond like a few banks moving from hong kong to singapore i don't i don't think it's a few banks i think i think a lot of people's business in that area of the world is 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 anchored in hong kong ours is and we're owned by a japanese company and our business is anchored in hong kong there, there are and huge is nikkei moving its business from hong kong uh no but i think all media bureau are thinking about what they do and looking about where they put their resources. China's so tricky anyway. So it's a, it's a real issue for everyone to think about what you're going to do. And covering the protests is exhausting and difficult. And your younger staff are very conflicted about whether they want to be part of the protest or covering the protest. So 
that that must be a read across to all other businesses. I think, and it is going to be very difficult for people to plan long term in Hong Kong. And I think that that's really important too, right? Because if you're thinking about this kind of acute issue right now with these protests, but then there's also the question of, okay, but like, what actually happens if the protests resolve? Like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean you're going to get a very, very it almost certainly means you're going to get a very, very different Hong Kong, but in which direction, right? Because right, I mean, I think that this is exactly everyone's thinking, which is this ends somehow. It's only going to lead to further crackdown and and, and more authoritarian regime in Hong Kong. That isn't authoritarian right. regimes don't go. This has gone badly. Let's lighten right. up a bit. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, but isn't they've it in out China's Ellen. interest to lighten up a little bit? I mean, if if the whole uh, I, status of the of the city is basically in jeopardy, I mean, isn't it in China's interest to kind of back off and and let. Hong Kong be Hong Kong? Or am I just being idealistic? And uh, one country, two systems? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think there are two things. I mean, you know, they they don't want to give anyone else any ideas, right? So right, I think that, that that is a big issue here, you know? And, and when you say anyone else, you mean other, like, Chinese provinces? Yeah, exactly. Or, in fact, people in mainland China as well. I mean, like, you, you don't want, you know, when you're this kind of authoritarian government, you don't want to show that you have weakness. So I, I think that that puts Hong Kong in a very kind of dangerous position. And where does that leave the Hong Kong population? Because I feel that... They have made it abundantly clear. Millions and millions of Hong Kongers have come out on the streets. Maybe they haven't all, you know, hold themselves up in universities with Molotov cocktails, but they've made it very clear that they have no interest in being part of a communist dictatorship, that they really value their freedoms and that they have been guaranteed their freedoms at least until 2047, and they're going to fight very hard for those. They're not going to stop fighting anytime soon if they see those freedoms being eroded, right? No, I mean, I think you're right. And I think this, you know, leads to these larger questions of as, you know, China is becoming more and more dominant and it's going to be harder and harder for countries to exist in this kind of liminal space between, you know, what we perceive of as kind of the American sphere and what is increasingly becoming, you know, the the Chinese sphere. And in, in there aren't any good answers of what's going to happen to the people in Hong Kong because, you know, and, and this is obviously very much about the desire for democracy and freedom and, and also does have economic realities that caused it too, right? You know, you have issues with significant income inequality, with massive housing issues. And, you know, these issues certainly aren't going away. Granted, the price of housing is probably going to come down. But, you know, if you're having a contracting economy, that's just going to make it even harder for a lot of the young population. So it's not easy to see this ending well anytime soon. Yeah, I, I don't I don't see how it can neatly resolve. But I, I would say again that it really would be in China's interest to cave. <laughs> I don't think it shows weakness. I think it shows strength. Um, and I guess my other thought was um, what Janine was saying a little bit ago about people are saying sort of a similar thing about London as they are now, like London's over, Hong Kong's over. Is there something bigger picture to think about that's going on right now? Some kind of reordering that we need to or, or have general on the radar? sort of unilateral rise of unilateralism and decline of yes. internationalism yes. and 
everyone's sort of retreating into their shells, including yes. the United States. Quite That's obviously. what it feels like. Yes, it really feels like a retreat from from globalism. And this this is something you hear a lot of people talking about, this idea of like deglobalization and what that looks like, because the systems are really just our economic systems. Nothing does, is you could potentially deal with slower globalization. But the idea of actually countries breaking apart, like traditionally, when you've seen that happen, it's been at really scary places like right before leading up to World War II, you know, it, it it tends to not augur anything good because it does show countries, you know, kind of looking in. And I, and I think we have two different trends here that are related, which is you do have this significant pushback on globalization, which I do think will kind of give more strengths to authoritarians. And you have this pushback against income inequality, which is getting a lot of young people in countries throughout the world, essentially kind of pushing back and protesting. All of the world's major global cities have extreme income inequality at least the ones that i can think of it's not just hong kong and london but it's also dubai Nero and uh, yeah but the, but but the more interesting thing i think layering on top of those questions these are incredibly complex things we've had so much of this in the uk around brexit incredibly complex detailed questions about how to unpick a 20 30 year relationship with a, a european wide community and business and infrastructure on every single level and that responds incredibly well to a really simplistic message like take back control. So you get these in three word slogans to combat insanely complex global economic knitted together that needs to be unpicked. And you just get some guy that comes along and goes take back control. And people respond, they flock to the simplicity of one message against the complexity of the other. And I think that's why it keeps happening again and again. We spent a lot of this morning talking about protests and why they're being mirrored around the world. And I, I think the response to complexity of a very uh, simple authoritarian message is not going to slow down. No, I agree. And, and I do think this is, you know, could potentially be this sign of, you know, the, people talk about like that Thucydides trap, right? This idea of when you have one global power and another global power, and usually you end up having some type of conflict. And we don't know what that type of conflict is going to look like. But this could be kind of, a you know, a sign of this kind of battle between these different um, this kind of Chinese and more U.S. and kind of Western model. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's talk about something later. I feel like after all of that bleakness about the end of democracy, we should talk about Taylor Swift. Janine, are you a fan? I'm a huge fan of Taylor Swift. We stand. Me too. <laughs> yeah, um, I met some people the other day who claimed that they were the ones who first approached her with a big uh, vault of money and said, let's buy up your back catalogue. And she knocked them back. 
and they but so she they- didn't own her back catalog this is the big problem here is that her first six albums are not owned by taylor swift her first six albums were owned by a record label called big machine she did not own big machine her dad owned a small chunk of it and the guy who did own it wound up selling it to scooter braun who's her arch enemy because he represents kanye west and now they're in a massive fight yes so i'm telling you i met the financiers who said we approached her first and said do you want to buy your um archive and she said no wait so what you're saying what you're saying is that she had right a few first refusal on her own masters and she said no this is like original reporting must credit slate money yeah, well, I mean, I'm not going on the record. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was backstage at a gig. I'm not, <laughs> I was in corporate hospitality. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that would be a big development in this case because there's a lot of he said, she said I going on I actually think it's here. quite consistent. I think it's quite consistent with her, uh, her position, which is an artist should automatically, through natural right own the right to perform and play their work. They create their work and it should be theirs. So if she didn't want to do a massively overfinanced engineered deal in order to buy her catalogue and is appealing to the natural rights of artists to own their material, that's, that seems consistent. And so the, then the people who did buy it were financed by Carlisle, the great private equity giant. And now she's fighting with Carlisle. And now Elizabeth Warren is siding with Taylor Swift against Carlisle because Carlisle is private equity. Anna, can any of this end well? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that at the end of the day, both Carlisle and Taylor Swift will be just okay. I... I <laughs> Yeah, like I mean, the the going after Carlisle is kind of odd because like they have a it's a minority stake. Like they don't really have any control about. They don't really have a significant control over what happens here, right? Um, no, but they couldn't. But Scooter Braun couldn't have done this deal without them. Correct, but it's done, so it's not like they can do that much now. That that's what I'm saying. I mean, I understand the um, especially now that PE funds are kind of like the new kind of goblins of finance <laughs> that I understand, you know, putting that name out there. And then I'm also not surprised that you had Elizabeth Warren and AOC coming out and, you know, against them. But at the end of the day, I do think this goes back to this idea that you're saying earlier that artists, almost all artists, do not own their masters. And while now you have some artists that have a lot of power, people like Taylor Swift that can negotiate new contracts with and potentially have control over their new masters. Like, it, it's a sad situation because on the one hand, you want to say like, oh, artists should have control over this, but they also sign contracts. And that's also how some of these smaller labels continue to produce their music and employ people, right? I guess the question is, if you're Carlisle and you are interested in buying Taylor Swift's masters or buying a minority stake in Taylor Swift's masters, do you ever stop and think to yourself, wait, I'm doing this not only without her consent, but against her wishes. And that is a bad look. Yeah, I don't nobody, understand no. how this can have come as a surprise to them. This because, is all... you know, Prince changed his name to a squiggle in a very <laughs> similar thing back in my era. And before that, I think Queen had a row with somebody. There were certainly two rival versions of Queen's greatest hits in the 70s. It was a very big deal. You know, and Paul McCartney had a huge the, fight with um, Michael, Jackson. Michael Jackson when right. Michael Jackson bought the Beatles back catalogue. Right. And yet everybody, as Anna quite rightly points out, seems to have done just fine out of every <laughs> right. single one of these battles. There's a whole bunch of artists clearly who do not have um, 
Taylor's clout, who who are being squeezed by streaming uh, services in these tiny, tiny, tiny uh, returns and don't own their rights and don't have the ability to say, well, I simply won't do a medley at the next Grammys because because of bad Scoot Abroad. And they're, they're properly struggling. So Taylor stands up and says, this is really bad and artists should own the intellectual copyright to their work. It is a bit like, I see it as her suing that DJ that grabbed her ass. I see it in the same way. It's not, it's not really for her. She's doing it for other people. I stand Taylor. I stand. <laughs> <laughs> we stand with, with uh, over here in um, Oxfordshire, we, we stand with Taylor. Emily, are you with us or are you with Anna? I mean... <laughs> I'm with no one here. I mean, I think, first of all, this was not a great deal. Like, Carlisle and and backing Scooter Braun on this, I mean, that was dumb. Like, Taylor Swift does not like, as you pointed out earlier, she despises this guy because he's, you know, Kanye's manager. And they did that that video, the famous video, where there was, like, a Taylor Swift clone who was naked. So she hates him. So buying a label that basically only exists because they have her master recordings. I think 80% or something like 80% of big machines revenues through Taylor Swift. Like that was a bad idea. And as soon as that happened, Taylor Swift said, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to re-record all my music as soon as my as soon as I'm allowed to. And then you won't have to go to big machine anymore. So she basically said after this deal happened, she's like, I'm going to put these guys out of business. So of course they tried to prevent her from singing back catalog at the American Music Awards because they needed to do something to have kind of some kind of leverage over her. It just seems like I don't I don't stand with Taylor Swift like I don't care. She's really rich. Do you think she's well, well, no, think her first six albums or do you think she's just threatening to re-record them in order to get some kind of a leverage? I think I think scene? it's a threat. I don't think she's going to spend her time re-recording all those albums. I, I think, yeah, I agree. I think it's a threat and it's just posturing. Tanina, is she going to do it? I think she will. I think she will. I think there'll be rainbows and unicorns and, and ex-boyfriends and sneakers and t-shirts and high heels and she will do it. I mean, I respect I, I, her coming I will out. buy all of those re-recorded <laughs> albums because I stand Taylor. What I, what, I, what I think is interesting here is that you're getting these very, very different views of, like, Taylor Swift's art, right? Like, you have the kind of view of Taylor Swift and her many, many fans on Twitter and, and this idea of, like, you know, this is, this is the thing I've created. And honestly... Those are cash flows to Carlisle. Those are cash flows, right? And, and and Emily, you're not wrong that you do think that if you are buying cash wrong. flows, no, you're not, you're not wrong that <laughs> if you're if you're buying a stake in something and its primary way of generating cash is this incredibly volatile asset that in theory could significantly dilute the value of that asset. Wait, and then are, potentially... you, are you saying that Taylor Swift is an incredibly volatile asset? She is I an mean, incredibly clearly. volatile asset. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sorry, Anna. She's like, continue. never. <laughs> I respect her. I mean, her just, just a... read the lyrics to Blank Space. It's all in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forget that Felix has that whole like pop music thing. But I, I want to stick on this uh, whole idea of incredibly volatile assets, Anna, because without changing the subject too much, there's this French cosmetics company called Coty mm -hmm. that just spent $600 million buying an asset, which if there's any asset more volatile than 29-year-old Taylor Swift, it's surely 21-year-old Kylie <laughs> Jenner, right? I and think that They have just bought 50% of Kylie Jenner for $600 million. 
I think this was a move of genius on Kylie Jenner's part because I think that they are over they are significantly overpaying for this asset. I think that Univardi, I believe, started to see some sales at Kylie Cosmetics decline. I think as you as you are now rightly pointing out, I think the idea that she's going to be able to maintain her current popularity and that she might not just do something crazy at one point, you know, that's that's a big chance you're taking. But you know what? She sold 51% of that company at a very high valuation. So Good for her. And they're they're doing Cody was not doing very well. And now, I mean, they should rename themselves Cody with a K. Right. <laughs> and I think their stock went up after they announced the deal. Well, that's also not because you are actually seeing and less of this is less fun, but you are seeing a lot more <laughs> M&A in this kind of beauty and cosmetics. Uh-huh. And you're seeing a lot of these kind of larger brands in, in legacy brands that are purchasing these kind of these upstarts. Right. Because it's cheaper. Well, it's not really cheap, but it, it's sometimes easier to just buy those brands as opposed to trying to generate that type of thing internally. Well, that's where the sales are now on makeup, like the big drugstore brands are basically in decline. People just, you know, they want to buy like the cool Instagram makeup. And th- so that's where these big companies are going to go to do deals. But it does suggest that even though right now that that might seem to make sense, it, you know, it, it will be interesting to see like what happens in 10 years, right? Or in one year. Kylie Jenner more or less invented the entire category of makeup that is sold over Instagram. No one really did it before her. Glossier was there. But so the question is, because she has such a huge following on Instagram, she managed to become much richer than any of her sisters. She kind of touched some kind of a nerve. Her sister Kendall is the highest paid model in the world. It's making like $18 million a year. And that's nothing compared to what Kylie is making selling makeup. It's amazing the power of her reach. But how long can it last? Almost entirely um, ground up, which was so Mm -hmm. bizarre. Mm -hmm. That moment sort of two, three years ago when people started talking about Kylie and they were not talking about Minogue. (laughs) And... (laughs) As as olds were just a bit baffled. Yeah, Kylie will always be Minogue. She will always be Minogue, and <laughs> and I'm just glad that trademark dispute went the right way. But my teens started talking about Kylie in a way that was clearly un-Minogue related, and <laughs> were exercising my economic power uh, in order to buy something I'd never heard of. Your, your and, and economic never, power ever, has ever gone to buy gone- lip kits. Yeah, quite. In, um, in order to buy something that I'd never heard of related to a family brand that I was frankly dismissive of, and suddenly I'm, you know funding it. So yes, Instagram was completely the way to do it. And it went through the hearts and minds of teens and the pocketbooks of their parents. And do you think Kylie Cosmetics is worth $1.2 billion? <sighs> Again, all those things like um, Joe Malone and uh, Miller Harris, Lynn Harris's perfume company, they start out as these incredibly artisanal bespoke brands and then get bought by Estee Lauder or whoever. And Heels. usually- and and usually then fall out terribly with the person. I think Eve Love was one of the original beauty people who got burned badly by being bought out by big, a big firm and sort of went off to do her own thing. Interestingly, the founders are never really heard of again because their name is a brand and, and they can't exist aside from it. So I would be, you know, Kylie I may have to accept that her 30s are going to be very quiet. I think Kylie did this right. I think that we have seen, as you say, like we've seen names like Helmut Lang and Jill Sander get bought up and those names then cannot be controlled by the people who were born with those names. And it's a bit weird that you can't use your own name anymore. But that's not what happened here. Kylie only sold 50% and she still runs the company and Cozy does not have control. Oh, but it's like a two-year earn out, isn't it? It's a two-year earn out. She sold 51%. I don't know. Yeah. 
No, but I, it, it will be interesting, though, because unlike some of these other like names we're thinking of, I mean, this brand, I mean, like because it was designed with these like literal images of herself that she's putting out constantly. She is so tied to this brand in a way that I do think is actually different than what we've seen in the past, just because social media has changed that. And you just yeah, wonder. It's not just right? a label anymore. It's an actual person. Right. That's what we're seeing with Taylor Swift, too. She was able to go out on social media, talk directly to her fans and like use that as leverage in a licensing dispute, essentially. Like now celebrities have this immense, immense leverage on their own, this economic power. A small number of them do. A small number of 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 women. One of them does. Will Kylie (laughs) be trying to free her lipstick in a year's time? (laughs) (laughs) Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's talk about TikTok. Because the only thing which is more popular than Kylie Jenner is TikTok. TikTok has been downloaded by 80 million Americans and I have, what, 700 million people around the world, something like that. It is the most addictive app in the history of apps. I have fallen down TikTok holes and suddenly realized that I've managed to spend like two hours looking at TikToks when these things are only lasting 15 seconds and I don't know how that is possible. (laughs) And it is crack cocaine and it is all done by some i want to say it's all done by some chinese algorithm but now all of the tiktok people are saying no no this isn't bite dance chinese artificial intelligence algorithms at all this is all non-chinese based in the united states the chinese owners don't have any control or influence whatsoever because there's this big controversy over tiktok being chinese owned and whether we should be worried about that janine should we be worried about that well i will say this i worry about tech platforms at the point where they arrive in london with very expensive prs and invite you to a dinner and uh bite dance and the tiktok founder and their very expensive newly hired european prs arrived in london about four months ago and um and invited a, v- a bunch of opinion formers to a n- to a nice dinner, where they explained to us that uh, they had regulators in every market, that there were seventy five moderators in the UK in Covent Garden, and another however many hundred in America and Germany and France, and, uh, and everybody should stop worrying about the content that was being fed to their teens because. Uh, uh, everything was being sort of uh, seamlessly uh, merged into the local markets and held to local standards. And then I overheard somebody else saying, how do you check the age of your users and the content? And everybody started talking about facial recognition of teens. And I thought, (laughs) oh yeah, that's not sinister at all. Totally happy about that. I think it's like, it's supposed to be 13 and over for TikTok. My my son is 11. Literally, he, everyone has TikTok in his, in his class, all the other 11 year olds. There's no, the age thing is, I mean, that's a lie. (laughs) Or it, (laughs) yeah. And and, I yeah. And this story does seem to be kind of bringing together these these fears of tech platforms in general and then these fears of kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier of Chinese ownership mm-hmm. and this kind of these different standards. And I know like Mark Zuckerberg was saying that TikTok was censoring the Hong Kong protests. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's true or not. And it's kind of odd to have Mark Zuckerberg being the person out here saying this. But 
But but I do think TikTok, it's this interesting company that we're, you know, we're, I imagine we're going to see a lot of fights over it moving forward because it does just seem in this kind of center of all these different conversations. They seem to really, I, I think um, Mark Zuckerberg and other Facebook executives are out there speaking up against TikTok because it's owned by the Chinese. It's like a great distraction from yeah. Facebook doesn't have to be like the big bad social media company anymore. Now they can they can say, oh, the Chinese social media company, that's the really well, bad Well, especially because, you know. Except for TikTok is great. I mean, it's so <laughs> right. It's it's what everyone likes to call the only good social network. You go on it and you see things that make you happy. There's, I mean, people are talking a little bit about political information and and misinformation because that happens on every social network. But I genuinely feel that that kind of thing happens much less on TikTok than almost well, any other. That's because they're censoring it, Felix. <laughs> <laughs> do you think, do you, Janine? Do you think that the Chinese? owners of TikTok are actively interfering in how it's run? I think, well, I mean, it's their th it's not interfering if you're running your right. platform according to your rules and your guidelines. That's that's just having a business. They, I think they would be very, very happy to think all of the content on this network is teens doing very funny dancing and memes and things that are harmless and joyful. Uh, and that's not how media peer-to-peer -peer teen media works because that's not how teenagers work they are passionate and rebellious and they go on strike from school and and want to you know change the world so uh there will be a clash and the cultural chinese way of dealing with content that you don't think is appropriate is to excise it uh, and I don't doubt for a second that that is happening. Yeah. And, and I also think there's this issue because, you know, even though right now I think a lot of the, you know, the kind of servers with this data are actually in the U.S., I believe. But I also think that moving forward, I think next year, the Chinese security laws are going to be expanding towards U.S. companies or I guess the U.S. parts of Chinese companies in a much stricter way. And then it's going to be a lot harder for these companies to get around Chinese requirements about giving the government access to data. And I think that's going to make the argument of TikTok a lot harder. Well, one of the ways that TikTok became big was that it bought this app called Musical.ly, which was quite big in the United States, and it rebranded it as TikTok. But because it was an acquisition, it technically falls under the purview of CFIUS, which is the regulator in the United States, which makes sure that Chinese companies don't do acquisitions which are bad for national security. And famously, CFIUS forced a Chinese company to sell Grindr after having bought it because they thought that was a security risk. And it is entirely possible, and I would go so far as to say probable, that Cepheus will go along to ByteDance and say, you have to sell TikTok. Yeah. And I'm not sure that ByteDance is going to be too upset about this because TikTok is worth what, like $70 billion now or something? Mm -hmm. They bought Musical.ly for chump change. They're going to make a huge amount of money on it. Their big money-making apps in China are going to remain big money-making mm -hmm. apps in China. And they just get to, you know, be the victims here and walk away with $70 billion. I mean, it doesn't sound terrible, does it? <laughs> and, they're not, and they're not going to have to carry on hiring moderators in Covent Garden, which is no tech company's idea of fun. That, that's not what they want. <laughs> so, <laughs> like Carlisle Group and Taylor Swift, they will also end up just okay. <laughs> Everything is going to be fine. Victimless podcast. <laughs> there are no victims except for the, you know, Hong Kongers in Polytechnic University. Let's have a numbers round. Why not, um, Janine? You get to go first because you're the guest. 
Oh, uh, my, no, oh, this is very unfair on Emily. But my number <laughs> of the week is uh, $700, which is the amount per week that uh, the Park Slope Food Co-op spends on plastic bags. Uh, there is a brilliant, brilliant uh, sort of 80,000 word piece in The New Yorker about Brooklyn's Park Slope Food Co-op, which is a perverse and fascinating institution. I urge you to read it. I, c- <laughs> I could read it for the rest of my life. I mean, it will take you a significant chunk of your life to read it, but every word is golden. And the idea is that if they replace those plastic bags, and remember, these aren't plastic bags where you carry your groceries home in. These are just little thin plastic bags yeah. which you put your grapes in. For weighing your kumquats and, and ugly flutes. For weighing your kumquats, exactly. <laughs> if they replace those plastic bags with biodegradable bags, then that would cost $17,000 a week or something like that. Well, I mean, for a start, we'd need to discuss it over a two-hour, 45-minute monthly council meeting. (laughs) And I would need you to think about the rights of the people that made the plastic bags. I'd just like you to think about that before you make that kind of decision and consider the impact on those in the global south. And And can we talk about hummus? Oh, do you remember the hummus wars? The, the hummus wars, <laughs> the hummus wars were classic. Emily, were you were you part of the hummus wars ever? I, I was just sitting back and just enjoying the content. That's that's my relationship <laughs> with I, the Park I, Slope Food Co-op is just purely a spectator. I'm afraid I lived in Park Slope during the hummus wars. We used to get leafleted in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, do you have a number which may or may not be Park Slope Food Co-op related? Uh. Well, I won't do this of uh, my Park Slope Food Co-op number. My backup number is three and has nothing to do with food. That is the number of months in Democratic candidate Amy Klobuchar's paid family leave plan versus six months, which is the number of months off you get in Kamala Harris's paid family leave plan. And I'm talking about this because we had here in the U.S., we had the Democratic debates, presidential debates on Wednesday night. And it was the first time this year, at least, that any candidate was asked about paid family leave, which is a big and important issue. And it was just really striking. And I'm excited about it because there were these two female candidates talking about their proposals. There were four women asking them questions in the debate on Wednesday night. And it was just, I think, a very significant moment in sort of for progress, in a sense. Agreed. My number is 26 billion dollars which is the amount of money that charles schwab is reportedly wanting to pay for td ameritrade these are two online brokerages which have both recently slashed their commissions to zero and judging by the 26 billion dollar purchase price of td ameritrade this doesn't seem to have hurt either of their values much if at all i think that's not overly surprising because i feel like in in this kind of new zero commission world, you're going to need scale, right? And so I think you're probably, I, I would imagine this is going to be the first of a lot of these kind of uh, consolidation in the industry. Anna, you get to have the last number. I will. So mine is 77 cents. So that would be the price on the Ecuadorian 2028 bonds. So <laughs> they hit a record low uh, this week. But they're still higher than the 70 cents on the WeWork 2028 <laughs> <laughs> that is a very fair point. <laughs> um, no, I, I just so basically, and it was a pretty significant fall in the price of the bonds after this reform bill didn't go through. And I, I guess I just think it's interesting, oh, partly because I think Ecuador is interesting, but also because part of the reason that people were really opposed to this tax reform was because it was seen as con- being connected with the IMF. And it just seems like increasingly in Latin America, even though countries often still need to go to the IMF, 
the very act of going to them then completely eliminates the political capital of that politician and makes it impossible for them to push through the, the reforms mandated by the IMF, which seems like a problem. So Maybe the IMF needs to rebrand. Out with it. Yeah. If you had to choose an Ecuador bond or a WeWork bond, which one would you choose? Oh, Ecuador. Hundred <laughs> percent. Like, oh, equ- definitely Ecuador. Definitely Ecuador. No, no one is long WeWork. <laughs> no one. No one's at sleep money. Okay, I think that's it for us this week. Our amazing transatlantic edition of Slate Money. Many thanks to not only Just Me and Molly, but also Kevin Bobby here in the UK for helping put this whole show together. And especially many thanks to Janine Gibson for wrapping up warm in the cabin number five in Oxfordshire to record this. Many thanks to you guys for listening. Our email, as ever, is slatemoney at slate.com. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Janine? It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.